It's Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 18, um, page 976 on the Church Bibles. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work, work, walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the passage that you've given us in Ephesians. And please help David now as he preaches uh, to us its meaning. And please help us to listen carefully to it, that we may be able to serve you and glorify you more through hearing it and please help the children in Sunday school now to that they may listen and please help the leaders teaching this story that they may also grow um, in a saving knowledge of you amen well, I'm sure you've heard of the term <coughs> the term armchair advisor maybe heard of armchair critic I want to speak about armchair advisor the person who sits observing all the problems of the world and with only a very limited understanding of the situation, with no real experience or first-hand knowledge of the situation, but from their comfortable armchair, they appear to know exactly how to solve every problem. 
Typically, you'll hear them say something like, if I was in charge, I would know what to do. Or if, uh, you know, give me the opportunity, I would have that problem sorted out in five minutes. Uh, the armchair advisor. They are generally rather annoying people. <laughs> Opinionated people. You, you probably ought to run as fast and as far away from as possible. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. I don't know. But as we return this first Sunday in 2024 to our morning series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we pick up our study here in verse 11 of chapter 2, I am going to be an armchair advisor this morning. I am. And I'm going to state that by the authority of Scripture, that the only real solution to the crisis in the Middle East is Jesus Christ. End of. He is the only real, true solution to real, lasting peace throughout the Middle East. That is what Paul is showing us in this passage. Did you see it? That's what Paul is saying to us in these verses we're coming back to in our series in the book of Ephesians. Late last year, we looked at verses 1 to 10, where Paul describes how every Christian at the church at Ephesus had been both before and after their conversion. Verses 1 to 3 describes their spiritual condition prior to faith. And verses 4 to 10 describe their condition from the moment they were converted from the moment they were born again of God's Spirit. And hopefully you remember that crucial hinge between those two spiritual states. I call it a hinge. But it's those two words you read at the beginning of verse 4, but God. At one stage, you were, as you read in verses 1 to 3, spiritually dead, living a life influenced, even controlled by the devil. As an unbeliever, you were living as the rest of the unbelieving world still lives. Simply verse 3, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and therefore even by nature children of wrath, which is really the, the worst of descriptions there. But then we come to verse 4, but God, the hinge turns suddenly, it turns, but God because of his, his mercy, his love, his grace, God saved you through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit made you now spiritually alive and joined you spiritually to your Savior. So much so that even now in some mystical way, but where your Savior is, where Jesus is there in heaven, so you are too in him, with him there in heaven. I'm not going to go over all of that again. It's on the website if you want to hear it again, but it's there. But those verses 4 to 10, those verses of how we are now, they describe our new relationship with God. They describe, as it were, the vertical aspect to our new identity, to our new being as believers in Christ. 
from where we were to how we now are. Those verses describe that that vertical perspective to our identity as believers. But now as we come to verse 11, Paul begins to remind the believers in Ephesus of their horizontal aspect to their identity. Their relationship with one another. Now that they have been changed from verses 1 to 3 to verses 4 to 10, so they've been uh, reconciled to God, Paul now goes on to show how they have been reconciled to each other. So the vertical comes first. Did you notice that? It's only when we are reconciled to God can we begin to think about being reconciled to each other. And that's, a, that's a, a profound principle to be worked out in any church. In marriages within a church, when, when a husband and a wife are both reconciled to God and, and both focus on Him, then that first primary priority, that profoundly affects then their relationship with each other. In a marriage, in a ministry team, in a church membership, in a church congregation, if we are all focused on him, then there's no problems down here. No problems at least that we could, that we can't deal with and work out together. Paul is wanting to show the church there in Ephesus what God has done in bringing them together. Bringing together a, a range of different people from from different backgrounds, possibly even from opposing ethnicities, but bringing them from where they were to how they now are. God has united them together as one people. God has knitted them together in the person of Jesus Christ. And now, yes, they're unique individuals and so on and so forth, but together they have become the church. Together they have become his church. Together they have become a single community of God's people who are now at peace with one another. So let's begin to look at these verses this morning. And first of all, we see verses 11 and 12 and how they once were. Verses 1 to 3 showed how the whole church were spiritually. But here in verses 11 and 12, Paul is looking specifically at Gentiles within the church, non-Jews within the church at Ephesus before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 tells us uh, their label. and Paul uses that label, the uncircumcised. And then in verse 12, he reminds them of what that label therefore meant for them in terms of having any real hope in the world, living as the uncircumcised. So first of all, then, we have their label, the uncircumcised. And that's obviously the opposite of the circumcised, the Jews. Jewish male babies were circumcised at eight days old. That was done as a sign of the covenant which God made to Abraham. 
that out of his family, all the families, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And you read of that in Genesis 17. And so Jewish male babies or servants within the Jewish community, they all were circumcised as God had commanded as a sign of their covenant. That promise that God made to Abraham was obviously fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He is that long-expected seed of Abraham. He is the descendant of Abraham through which God would bring blessing to the whole world, not simply to ethnic Jews, but to all who will believe on his name. (coughs) So the Jewish sign of circumcision, as well as being something specific to ethical Israel, as the covenant community of God, it also pointed to this promise of God still to come, whether for the Jew or for the non-Jew, but wherever they were, whether you're a Jew in Israel or a Jew in Gateshead, whether you're a Gentile in Gateshead or a Gentile in Ireland, (laughs) wherever, but Christ has come for the whole world. His focus here this morning, though Paul's focus, is the uncircumcised. I don't know if there are any Jews here this morning, but for us all, we are the uncircumcised. That's a fairly nice way of Paul putting it, the uncircumcised. Jews typically label Gentiles as dogs. William Barclay <clears throat> who is brilliant for his historical background. He's rather dodgy for his theological background. I would always stress you read him with your Bible open, for sure, when you read any of his commentaries. But he is very good historically uh, on Scripture. He says this, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. So you see there the the ethical, cultural difference between Jew and Gentile in this, well, through this sign of circumcision. If you have it, you're in. If you don't have it, you're out, as it were. And because of that difference, because of that separation between Jew and Gentile, there then developed this racial hostility from Jew towards Gentile. By the way, that racial prejudice, by and large, has changed direction. So much so, it now seems the whole world hates Jews. The bizarre violence against Jews, the, the 
crazy conspiracies that fuel it, even the Roman Catholic Church fueling it, even sadly by some Protestants. We think of Martin Luther, he was very wrong in his opposition to Jews. Whether it was the pogroms of Russia or the Nazi Holocaust, or even in our own day, British pro-Palestinians, even naive school children chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, basically calling for the annihilation of every Jew in Israel in our day. But the direction of hatred, of racial prejudice has definitely changed, definitely changed. And I can appreciate that for some, that apparent hatred towards Israel is yet another sign that we are in the last hour before the Lord Jesus Christ returns again. So that's the label that Paul uses to describe those non-Jews before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's a description of us, Gentiles, the uncircumcised as it were. If that's the label, then verse 2, verse 12 rather, describes what that then meant for such people. The implications for such people and of course for us before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul uses five phrases here to describe us, if you're a Christian, to describe us before our conversion. If as Jesus told the woman at the well of Sychar in John 4 that salvation is from the Jews, if you remember how Paul describes the privileged position of Israel, I think of Romans 9 verse 4, he says, theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised, amen. Then where are we or where were we in relation to the Jews? in relation to those covenants and those promises of salvation that God had given them. Paul gives us here five descriptions of where we once were. First of all, he says we were separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. Now, if you remember what Paul writes back in chapter 1, Paul wrote that long paragraph describing the tremendous blessing of someone who is in Christ. Someone having been chosen in Christ, verse 3. Someone having redemption in Christ, verse 7. Having an inheritance in Christ, verse 11. Verse 13, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit in Christ. And in chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, or 4 to 6, the great benefit of being with Christ made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Here, Paul reminds us that once we were separated from Christ. It's dramatic language. It's, it's important we highlight these particular words. Once we were separated as, as non-Jews, we, we didn't have anything of the hope they had. 
We had nothing to look forward to as they had. We had no promised Savior to look forward to as they had. No one who would come and redeem us. No one who would come and rescue us. No one who would come and restore us. We had no Savior. We were without Christ. And just think of that, actually. If you consider all the history of this world, Think of all the different civilizations, the different nations, the different cultures, all of them with their own false religions, all of them worshiping some deity they believed to be a deity, but every one of them with no saving knowledge of this truth, of a coming Messiah who would bring rich, this rich salvation for whoever would believe on him, whoever who would receive him as their savior. No hope whatsoever. The second and third phrases are fairly similar. We'll look at them together. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. As non-Jews, we were without a spiritual home. We, we had no spiritual community. We had no kingdom to belong to that had been chosen by God, had been blessed by God and given such wonderful promises to by God. We were just a people, an ordinary people like everybody else in this world. If you think too of how the Lord had specifically chosen Israel and how he tells them that, how out of all the many peoples of the world, the, the many tribes that existed of this world, God had chosen them. God had chosen this people to be his own people, his, his treasured possession. I try and imagine then how not being included in that group, that privileged people. We live in such a, an age of being politically correct. <clears throat> And how we can't be exclusive, we can't exclude people. Well, certainly if you lived prior to Christ, the gospel excluded people. In a sense it did. It is inclusive, it includes anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time it is also exclusive because it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to God. So imagine, try and imagine what it's like to be outside this people, this people who have been promised such wonderful promises from God, to not have any of that, to not know any of that. Think of the billions of people who have died without knowing this. How privileged it is then to only hear at least once even the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even just once. To hear that in this God there is such rich salvation. And how many times have you heard and walked away? 
How many times have you heard? We often say, well, what about those who have never heard? Isn't it unfair of God to condemn such people who have never heard? Yeah, we could talk about that. But have you heard? Do you believe? Why not? The fourth and fifth phrases take the picture even further. That for those outside the nation of Israel, they have no hope. They are without God in the world. Now, obviously, the long-term plan of God was to reach the Gentiles through Christ. We've read of that this morning from Isaiah 42. That was always the plan of God to, through Abraham, through Israel, through uh, his descendants, and then through the descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would reach to all the people of the world to offer them salvation. But the Gentiles didn't know that. They had no hope to sustain them living in this harsh and broken world. And those of you who know anything of pagan religions, they, they may well have had some sort of hope. Just think of the Vikings, for example. You think of how they had the, the belief in Valhalla, that their warriors, their mighty warriors, would one day, their spirits would reach the great feast room of Valhalla, that that was their hope. It was a false hope, though. There is no Valhalla. There is no place like that. And so every Viking who died believing that went to hell. They had hope, but it was a false hope. Every promise and therefore every hope offered to us from any religion other than what the Bible offers us is an empty hope based on an empty promise. That's what Paul is saying to us here, you see, in these verses, that outside of Scripture, outside of the prophetic promises of the Old Testament, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this life. And again, the modern argument is, well, you know, we're all headed to the same God, aren't we? At the top of the mountain is the same God. We're just going up different paths, different routes, and here we are. We're going up the road called Christianity, and around the other side of the mountain is the road called Islam, and on the other side, the road called Buddhism or whatever else. We're all making our own way up to the top, but when we get to the top, it's the same God. Paul says, not at all. There is no God but the Lord. And the only way to the Lord has come to us through the Jews, through what God has said to them, through the scriptures that we have in front of us here this morning. Every other way leads to hell. So these five descriptions give us a rather bleak miserable picture of how things were for those outside of Israel. William Hendrickson summarizes their situation as Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. And friends, this is a picture of how we were 
how you and I were before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. In our hearts, we were alienated. We were separated from the Lord. Yes, we had our own beliefs. We had our own views. We had our own false hopes. And if you're a Christian, I'm sure, I hope you can relate somewhat to what Paul is writing here. That's why, you see, he tells these Christians in Ephesus, verses 11 and 12, to remember. Do you see that? Verse 11, therefore, remember. Verse 12, remember. Think about where you came from. Think of how you once were without Christ. Remember how false and empty your life was without Christ. Remember how you, you had your own faith. This is what I believe. People often say that. I know you believe this, but I believe this personally, you know. You once believed that. Maybe you thought there is no God before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. But then you heard the gospel of Jesus. You heard of how God so loved you that he sent his son, his beloved son, to suffer and die for you. You heard of how Jesus took responsibility for all your sin. And he came into our world and suffered in your place so that you could be spared God's judgment. You heard the truth. As Jesus says, the truth will set you free. You heard that truth, that message of God's love, that message exclusive to the Bible, and by the grace of God, it, it humbled your, your proud heart. It, it, it cut through that, that dragon-like armor to your heart. It cut through it. It humbled you. It corrected your thinking. And by the grace of God, you turned to God. You turned from your sin to your Creator and believed His good news in Jesus Christ, His Son. And this morning, you're saved. Hallelujah. This morning, you're in. This morning, you're now in this community of saved people, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, but you're in. You're included in this covenant people of God. Yes, once you were excluded, now you're included. Once you were not a people, but now you are his people. As we reflect on that, and we need to, friends, we do need to. We need to look back on where God met us in our lives and the journey, the, the testimony we hear people share sometimes from the frontier. As you look back and you see how God brought you through life and the people he used to influence you and the, 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 the meeting that a relative or, or a friend brought you to or, or maybe a ministry you watched on the internet or maybe it was a book you read or a tract you read, but you see the, the pathway that God brought you through from knowing nothing to knowing enough to take hold of it and believe 
so that now you look back and you can say, as Paul describes here, how rich God's mercy was towards me. There's a song, there's a golden oldie, and I don't know the words to it, so I'm not, I'm not going to try it. Mercy, grace, oh, I can't even remember it. I remember singing it back in Ireland. But yes, there's a song in our hearts, you see, because you look back and you think, God saved me. He saved me. I, I, there was once a point in my life I wanted nothing to do with God, or I was never thinking of God even. But, but, but he brought me into this knowledge of, of himself and myself, and he brought me to a knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, and now I believe how good is the God we adore. How wonderful he is that he should have done that to me. That change, that transition is a blessed moment. Some of us knew exactly the moment we, we came to faith. Others of us, yeah, either we can't remember because of age or the change was slow. If you were brought up in a Christian home, which is a wonderful thing, maybe it, it was a gradual realization that, yeah, I do believe actually. I do believe the gospel. I am a Christian. But that transition, Paul again shows in verse 13 through another hinge. Back in verse 4, there was that hinge, but God. Here in verse 13, we have another hinge, but now, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to explore this much, much more, God willing, next week. But can I please just close stressing this this morning? It's not a, a matter of changing religion for you to be saved. I know some of you have come from different countries. You've come to this country, and this is typically a Christian country, so I'm going to change my religion that that's not how you be, you're saved, friend. It's not a matter of changing religion. It's a matter of the person of Jesus Christ and of you putting your faith, your trust in him. Paul writes, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we who by nature and by practice were far off from God, that we are now brought near to God through the death of Jesus, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Through his death, sinners can be reconciled to God, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. But this is the, the commonality that we can share, as Paul will go on to explain, that through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but Jesus has opened up this, this way back to God for all who will believe on him. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That means Jesus alone is the one who can save us from our sins. 
Jesus alone is the one who can reconcile us to our Creator. He alone can sort out that vertical relationship between us and God. He alone can do that. And as we'll explore next week, God willing, He alone is the one who can sort out our horizontal position here and reconcile us to one another as we together, whether we're Jew or Gentile, but we together come to God through him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus is indeed the, the peacemaker for this world. That in a world of hostilities and hatred, where ethnicities separate and divide, we thank you that there is one who is able to knit us together as brothers and sisters. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that throughout the world you are making peace on earth through calling people to faith in Jesus. That people with historical hostilities would be joined together in love, in the faith, in Jesus Christ. So we pray that in places like the Middle East, we think of Africa too and all the many different tribes and beliefs, we pray, Lord, that throughout this world that you would be gathering your people and bringing them together and joining them together as one people through faith in Jesus. We pray for those who are serving then in other parts of the world, for missionaries who have gone out, that you would strengthen them and encourage them, Lord. We pray that you would protect them. We, we think again this morning of Daniel and Kathleen in Nigeria, people facing hostility. Lord, please help. Lord, build your kingdom in spite of all that is against it and join your people as one. We ask for this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.